Hello and welcome to Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. Each week, you'll join Messiah's Upper Room Bible Study Class led by Pastor Jim Adi. The class is taking a break from our series over the Gospel of John while Pastor Adi is away this week. Instead, we have guest speaker Bob Orr leading the class over the topic of love in the books of Galatians and 1 Corinthians. Enjoy. Uh, This morning, we're going to talk about the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit and what he brings to us in love. And that was kind of the background of it. Unfortunately, yesterday was a bad day for this country. And uh, it makes me wonder what's going on. It seems to me like we've sown the wind and we are now reaping the whirlwind. We've taken God out of the public sector and now... We're reaping the results of it. When we teach our kids, they're nothing but grown-up germs. And that and the human life is not important. We have been studying the book of John, and John emphasizes the love of God for his people and God's love dwelling in us. A few weeks ago, we talked about how being born from above in chapter 3 of John, that it is the work of the Holy Spirit making dead people alive. Last week, we talked about the living water of the Samaritan woman at Jacob's well. This living water represents the presence of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said it will become a well of water springing up to eternal life. The two passages that I'm going to talk about today describe divine love or Christian love of God springing up to life in the believer. I think these two passages are given as a challenge to see if we have God's love dwelling in us. Jesus said, by their fruits you shall know them. 400 years later, Augustine said, no fruit is good which does not grow from the root of love. Who am I going to plagiarize from this time and in this session? (laughs) Well, here's the list. Jonathan Edwards, Luther, Calvin, and I know some of you rankled your hair with that name, but that's all right. Read his institutes and you'll change your mind. C.S. Lewis, Matthew Henry, and Charles Spurgeon. What started me off on this, I was reading Jonathan Edwards' book, Charity and Its Fruits and Religious Affections. These were an investigation by him into whether conversion was a real conversion or a false conversion. And it grew out of the Great Awakening in the 1730s and 1740s when a whole group of people all of a sudden became converted in New England. George Whitfield was one of the main speakers, and Jonathan Edwards was one of the other speakers. His concern was, were these real conversions, or as in the parable that Jesus told, did the seed fall on stony ground or among the thorns, and did it spring up and then die because there was no root or become choked by the cares of the world, as Christ talked about in the parable. These two passages of Scripture tell us what true Christian love looks like. Item one on your outline, to try to interpret Scripture such as this, there are several things required. This This obviously isn't exhaustive. Belief in the whole Bible is primary. Scripture interprets Scripture, not traditions, not denominations, not feelings, but good commentaries will really help. What is the context of the passage? In other words, who wrote it? When was it written? To whom was it written? And why was it written? Or what was happening at the time it was written? That explains a lot of the meaning of the passage. Item two, why these two sections of Scripture? Well, Corinthians 13 and John 14 are the two favorite chapters of the whole Bible. And of course, Corinthians 13 is sometimes called the love chapter because it discusses what love is and people feel comforted by it. I'm probably going to disturb some of that comforting today. In Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is given and starts with love. These are probably the best descriptions of Christian love aside from the actual life of Jesus. From the Greek, C.S. Lewis says, Charity, which is the King James Version of love, agape, is called agape in the New Testament to distinguish it from eros, which is sexual love, storg, which is family affection, and philia, which is friendship, as in Philadelphia. 
So there are four kinds of love, all good, in their proper place. But agape is the best because it is the kind God has for us, and it is good in all circumstances. Agape and phileo are, are both used in the New Testament, but, as far, but by far the term agape is, is the term translated love in the New Testament. The New Testament has agape about 110 times, whereas phileo is about 27. In the King James Version, agape is translated charity sometimes, but the meaning of charity has greatly changed since 1603. And even in the 1750s, Jonathan Edwards had to redefine charity as divine love or Christian love. These two sections give a description of what God, God's love is and what he brings to us with his indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There, is, there are other lists, such as the Beatitudes, and Second Peter also has a good list in chapter 1. But we often talk about it, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians and then rattle off love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control without ever thinking about what we're saying. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is not fruits. In other words, it is all or nothing. You get the Holy Spirit or you don't get the Holy Spirit. You can't pick and choose. I like this one item like uh, kindness or something like that and concentrate on that one. You get the whole package. But why was this written and what was happening to cause Paul to write this? In chapter 13 of, of Corinthians, we have a similar list, although we don't memorize it near as well because it's kind of longer and a little more difficult. In item three, is there a connection between the two and does one help interpret the other? Most definitely they are they help interpret each other. There is only one love, and that is God's love. Jonathan Edwards wrote, God is love, and he that has God dwelling in him by his spirit will have love dwelling in him also. The nature of the Holy Spirit is love, and it is by communicating himself to his own nature to his saints that their hearts are filled with divine charity. Also, and that this charity is the life and soul of all religion, without which all things that were the name virtues are empty and vain. And we might think about that today and, and when we talk about virtues today and, and family virtues and things like that. Without love, virtues become meaningless. Who wrote these sections? Paul, obviously. When were they written? First Corinthians, about 55. Galatians about 54. What was happening in the Roman Empire at that time? That great defender of the Christian faith, Nero, just became Rome, the emperor of Rome. So there was a difficult time for them. To whom was it written? To the church at Corinth and the, church, and the churches in Galatia. Galatia is not a town. Galatia is an area, and it was one of those circular letters that was written to numerous churches. Why were they written? What was happening? What was happening in Corinth when Paul wrote to, to the Corinthians? There was strife over who had the better baptism. They said, I was baptized by this person, or I was baptized by that person, and so I am better than you are because you didn't have, weren't baptized by Apollo or by Paul or somebody like that. Who had the greater gifts? There's a long list of gifts in chapter 12, and in chapter 14 they talk about it. And there was a type of incest which even the, the pagans didn't uh, participate in. The taking of communion was done in a very unworthy manner. Chapter 12, Paul spends the whole time going over the gifts of the Spirit and gives kind of a ranking in chapter 27. There was evident envy, arrogance of who had the greater gift. And he ended by saying, chapter 12 ends by saying, and I will show you a more excellent way. Now, why the chapter breaks there, I'm not sure, but somebody in 1500 decided to put a 13 in there and start chapter 13. There's no break in the train of thought. Now, five, what was happening in Galatia? The problem was with the Judaizers trying to bring back circumcision and the law, trying to be justified by works. They were becoming boastful, challenging one another, and envying one another. Paul calls them foolish Galatians. 
Galatians 3.13, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Now we know what was happening to cause Paul to write these two letters. In Corinthians 12, Paul uses the whole chapter to discuss gifts and the greater uses. Corinthians evidently had a great deal of pride in their works and abilities, and they were lording over each other. But Paul says at the end of the chapter, the more excellent way, and Paul starts chapter 13 with item 7, warnings about pride in our works. This will tell you what all those gifts mean for you. 13, chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. In other words, all of those gifts of tongues and things like that are count for nothing. We still have that problem in a lot of our churches today. You have to have certain gifts to be cons considered saved. Chapter 13, verse 2, if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. The faith talked about is faith in miracles, not faith in Christ. Mysteries refers to here was used to describe many of the cultic rites at that time. At that time, there was an intermingling of those rites with Christianity. Paul also uses this term to refer to the hidden counsel of God which was fulfilled on the cross. Calvin says, the main truth of the package is, this passage is that as love is the only rule of our actions and the only means of regulating the right use of the gifts of God, nothing in the absence of it is approved by God, however magnificent it may be in the estimation of men. Verse 13, uh, excuse me, verse 3, and if I give my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love, it promises me nothing. Your gifts and good deeds profit nothing without the foundation of love. In John 15, Christ says that unless I abide in you and you abide in me, you can do nothing good. Making a great show of affection and love to God in outward action, while there is no sincerity in the heart, is hypocrisy and lying to the Holy Spirit. If the heart is right, not right, it counts for nothing. And as Luther said to Erasmus in Bondage of the Will, that nothing is not some little something, which Erasmus kept trying to make it. Charity, according to Matthew Henry, charity or agape is the utter enemy of self, of selfishness, excuse me, is the utter, other enemy to selfishness. It does not desire or seek its own praise or honor or profit or pleasure. Not that charity destroys all regard to ourselves or that, or that the charitable man should neglect himself in all his interest. But charity never seeks its own to the hurt of others or to the neglect others. It ever prefers the welfare of others to its private advantage. Paul now gives the Corinthians item eight and the Galatians attest. Matthew Henry continues to state, some of the effects of charity are stated that we may know whether we have this grace, and if we have not, we may not rest till we have it. This love is a clear proof of regeneration and is the touchstone of our profession of faith in Christ. Second Corinthians 13 says, test yourself to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you indeed you fail the test? And in Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This refers, of course, to sanctification, not justification. 
Do we know the difference between sanctification and justification? I hope, if not, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'll, I'll be glad to explain it if there's a question. Justification, of course, is the declaration by God that we are, uh, we are just. Sanctification starts at justification and continues through the rest of our life, cleaning up the mess we've made of it. In, first, in Corinthians and Galatians, the attributes of love are given as a challenge to see if the members are really converted. It is also a challenge for us to see how we stack up. Rather than a comforting list of attributes, they show us the shortcomings of our own sanctification. Galatians gives us eight statements of what love is, and Corinthians gives us eight statements of what love is not, along with a few positive statements. Sometimes it's easier to say what something is and what it isn't. But the negative statements can get very pointed rather than subjective as the general statements. Spurgeon says, an increase of love, a more perfect apprehension of Christ's love, is one of the best and most infallible gauges whereby we may test ourselves whether we have grown in grace or not. If we have grown in grace, it is absolutely certain we shall not have advanced in our knowledge and reciprocation, that we have advanced in our knowledge and reciprocation of the love of Christ. In both cases, the members of the churches were falling back on external works, doing it our way instead of God's way. We want to think we have something to do with our salvation, and therefore we can brag about our salvation. There are a lot of people today who think they can do it their way instead of God's way. What is what I consider the main problem with adding works to get to, to, besides having faith, adding works for justification. When you have to add works for justification, add, excuse me, add to faith works for justification, what you're saying is that the death, of, death and resurrection of Christ on the cross wasn't sufficient, wasn't sufficient. It was necessary, but it wasn't sufficient. Therefore, Christ didn't do quite enough to save you. You've got to save yourself by your own works. That, to me, is the biggest problem with anybody who says we've got to do works to be justified. Works are required after justification, but not before. Justification, by the way, in the Greek is used to for, excuse me, is dikaiosone, which means to declare just. And Luther said, we are just while we are still sinners. So we are justified while we are still sinners. We continue to sin after we are justified, but we have been justified before, during, and after our life. It's not we are justified up to our, I mean, we are justified up to that point, and then we have to start all over again. Justification covers our whole life once it comes. The test for Galatians is given as a warning about reverting back to the law. And in verse 19, he, give, he gives the Galatians a challenge. He says, if you want to live by your law, this is what will happen to you. If you want to live by the Holy Spirit, this is what will happen to you. And if you live by the law, now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which is immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, and it goes on and on carousing and things like this, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, of course, these don't relate to us, or obviously doesn't relate to us, but they might relate to that person down the street from us, or maybe the person that sits three pews over from you. He tells us if we have the Spirit, if they have the Spirit, they have the fruit of the Spirit. It is love and, the love, and the rest follows from the fruit of the spirit of love. Luther says, it would have been enough to mention only the single fruit of love, for love embraces all the fruits of the spirit. And he goes on to add to that. I'm going to skip the next one. In your outline there, you've got a chart, looks something like that, comparing the two Bible passages. On the right side, you've got Galatians, on the left side, you've got Corinthians. I added a section from Colossians down at the bottom right. Uh, I did that mostly to fill in the chart to make it square. 
Jesus said he'll know, we will know Christians by their fruits. If someone looked at us, could they convict us of being a Christian from our fruits? In other words, do we show enough Christianity to be convicted of being a Christian when we go out in the world? Starting with the Galatians, the, at, the attributes are woven, woven together like a chain. You can't define one without involving the other. Love, joy, peace are what God instills in us, while the others refer to our relations with each other, and they closely are related to the communicable attributes of God. God has the communicable attributes and the non-communicable attributes. The communicable attributes are ones that we share with him. The other ones refer to his infinity and his omnipresence, omni, omniscience, and things like that. The attributes listed here are more subjective, and trying to define them is very dependent upon a standard. If you don't have a standard, a transcendent standard, in other words, God, we are comparing ourselves with ourselves or maybe the neighbor down the street using feelings, community standards, or some kind of a pole. So without God, you can't define most of these things. Joy and peace is what Galatians start with. Joy we've discussed here a couple of weeks ago. Joy is the, whole, is the result of the Holy Spirit writing, residing in the heart of a Christian. John 15, 8, these are these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made complete. Christian joy is what I'm referring to, not the common use of the term joy. And it's opposed to happy or glad. It is something that is internal and starts in the heart, while happy and other sentiments are external and on the, fur, on the surface. I like the acronym JOY, J-O-Y, because to me it means Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And every time I think of that, it puts some perspective on me and how important I am. Rejoice and joy are used to describe believers over, over 100 times in the New Testament. And we are told to rejoice in the Lord, even when persecuted. Our joy is based upon our hope, our assurance, as we discussed last week, in the promises of God and in, on the character of God. Peace is peace with God. You are no longer hostile to the things of God. In Romans, Paul says, in our normal flesh, we are hostile to the things of God, and we are dead in the spirit. And as scripture also says, you are to be at peace with all as, with all as far as it concerns you. You certainly will not be at peace with the world. Sin causes a separation. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from our neighbor. Look at Adam and Eve. All of a sudden, Eve was the guilty one for making Adam sin. And then Eve said God was the guilty one for sending the serpent. So we have separation all the way through. And it also separates us from ourselves. We tend to tell lies to ourselves, thinking we're better than we really are. John says in chapter 14, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. So we've gone through love, joy, and peace. That's the things that the Holy Spirit instills in us. Those are the gifts we get along with the Holy Spirit. The next one is patience, and that's on both sides, in Corinthians and Galatians. Patience is, is sometimes or often translated as long-suffering, which to me is a better description of it in this case. It reflects on how you react to the way people treat you. In other words, do you react with patience and long-suffering, or do you want revenge immediately? The Old Testament does not use this expression, but uses, uh, to describe God, the term slow to anger, which is the same type thing. And, of course, God showed that he was very slow to anger took him hundreds of years before he finally punished him. 
The long-suffering of God is incomprehensible given our record of rebellion. When we sin, we do not hurt God. God grieves because we are hurting ourselves. We do not break God's law. We break ourselves on them. God designed us. He built us. He knows every fiber in our body. And he knows when we hurt ourselves. And it grieves him. Kindness is the next item. Our kindness is how we treat other people. And uh, after yesterday's events, we ought to concentrate on that a little bit more. Remembering that everybody is created in the image of God, and we all have intrinsic value. Life is precious to God, and it should be precious to us. In secular humanism, or the theory of evolution, there is no intrinsic value in people. Just what our emotions say we should feel about them, or what the state says, or what some poll says. In, in secular humanism, we are nothing more than just grown-up germs, random mutations without any purpose or meaning. And then when people act like that, we wonder why, because that's what we teach them. The term loving kind, I've, I looked this up because people have told me, and I've heard it mentioned in here, that in the Old Testament, God was a very uh, judgmental uh, being, and he was not very nice. And some people said they disliked the God of the Old Testament, but the God of the New Testament is very good. So I would just like to bring this up. In the Old Testament, the term loving kindness is the Hebrew term hasid, <coughs> excuse me, hasid. I think I pronounced that somewhere close. And it's almost always used in reference to God's dealing with his people. The term doesn't translate well into English, and I'm told it has a number of translations, so I looked it up. It occurs 239 times in the Old Testament, almost all of them referring to God. And it, and it is translated as goodness, kindness, devotion, faithfulness, uh, loving kindness. Uh, loving kindness is 176 translations. Loyalty, merciful, unchanging love. It doesn't sound to me like God is a, an evil creature trying to punish us. Sounds to me he was doing everything he could to save the Israelites. The ultimate kindness of God, of course, is the sending of his son Jesus to save us from our own sins. The next item is goodness on, under Galatians. And I really had trouble with this one. Does anybody want to give me a definition of goodness? I tried to define it. Well, I'm glad nobody, uh, nobody else has got one either. <laughs> In the secular world, good is opposed to bad. So if I like something, it's good. If I don't like something, it's bad. But tomorrow, my opinion might change, and what was bad yesterday might be good today. So does it have any meaning at all? So goodness to me was very difficult to define. And then when I looked at God and they said, God is good. And I said, well, what does that mean? Because I can't define it in the temporal section. Goodness is, to me is like holiness. It is everything that God exists, every, all the attributes of God added together. You can't separate one out without the other. In other words, it includes grace, mercy, love, and those kinds of things which we like. But it also includes justice, wrath, and punishment, which we don't like. God sets the absolute standard for all of these items. God sets the absolute standard for all these attributes. So the more we learn about God, the more we can learn about how we meet or fail the tests of love. Calvin, in a section that I didn't read, tells us that the more we learn about God, the more we can learn about ourselves. And the more we learn about ourselves, the more we can learn about God. In other words, he says it's a circular item because God made us, God tells us how to do it, and as we clean up our act, we can learn more about God, and as we learn more about God, we can learn more about ourselves. So neglecting to learn about God is something that we shouldn't be doing. The next item is faithfulness, which is a steady in allegiance, 
or affection, loyal or constant. In Lamentations, it says, the Lord's loving kindness indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. God also says, I will never leave you, neither will I forsake you. That is our hope and our assurance. God cannot lie. He is immutable, and it sets a pretty tough, tan pretty whoops, a pretty tough standard for us, and it is impossible for us without the Holy Spirit abiding in us. The next item is gentleness, and it is sometimes translated meekness or humility. Most places in Scripture, it is paired with those. And in John, it is even paired in the Gospel of James. Excuse me, the book of James, it is paired with wisdom from above. If we look at these attributes from a secular human's viewpoint, the definitions are very different. Gentleness and meekness is not desired, and humility, of course, is looked on as a weakness. But this crosses over into the Corinthians. And goodness and gentleness, if you look over on the other side of that chart, it is not jealous, it does not brag, it is not arrogant, does not act unbecoming, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, and rejoices in truth. In other words, one of these passages complements the other and explains it even better. If you want to know what goodness and gentleness are, take a look at the other side, and you see what it is not. Sometimes it's a lot easier to define something by what it's not than what it is. The last item on here is self-control. And of course, I'm sure nobody in here has a problem with that. And if they, if they do, uh, please don't see me because I might get mad at you. <laughs> it is only, the term is only used a couple of times in Scripture, and here, and in 2 Timothy and 2 Peter. If you have all the other attributes, patience, kindness, mercy, and love, self-control would not really be a problem. And if you have a problem with self-control, and I think we all have some degree of difficulty with this. After all, I only yell at a few drivers driving down the freeway, not all of them. The problem is really in one of your other attributes. In other words, do you have, the, uh, do you have gentleness, humility, and faithfulness? Are you kind to other people, or do you yell at them? Somewhere along, before you got the self-control, you didn't make it. And self-control is simply the result of it. God has ultimate power. And he has ultimate self-control, thank goodness. Because if he didn't, he would have done away with us a long time ago. It's easy for you to have self-control when you don't have the power to do anything about it. In other words, people are held back by the norms of society or things like that. You take away the norms of society and you take away the... the uh, hand of the Holy Spirit, and what do you end up with? You end up with the Holocaust in Germany, where all of those things were removed, and the, the most intelligent nation in the world turned to genocide. And uh, I have long tried to figure out how in the world that could have happened. But then I, as I learn more and more, it's simply God removed his uh, hand. It is in all of us that we could do that. And if the Holy Spirit takes his hand away from us, we could all be guards at, the, at Auschwitz, unfortunately, because it, it resides in all of us and it is part of our humanness. Not a very good thing to say today, but yesterday, I think, proved that exists in this country even. You get to the other side now of this chart, and we have covered patience and kindness, unless somebody else wants to talk about it, is not jealous. In other words, it doesn't envy, it doesn't covet. Of course, the Tenth Commandment says you shouldn't covet and envy. It refers to how you look at other people and want what they have. You have if you have Christ living in you, you don't need anything else, to tell you the truth. It does not brag, it does not vaunt itself up. The next one I like, is not arrogant. The Greek word for it is very descriptive. It is puffed up. 
In other words, full of hot air. It, it talks about how you degrade people around you and trying to make them second class and, and treat them badly. And once you start treating somebody badly, you learn to hate them. And then you hate them because you treated them badly, so you treat them worse. And then you hate them because you treat them worse, and you hate them even more, and so you try to get rid of them. And that happened to the Jews in Germany in the 1930s. They didn't like them, so they treated them bad. Now they hated themselves because they treated them bad, so they hated them even worse. And pretty soon they said, the only thing we can do is exterminate them. And that led up to the Holocaust. And it can happen anywhere. It happens in Uganda. It happened in many places in this world where they try to ethnically clean uh, people out. Does not act, the next item is do not, does not act unbecomingly. It also means unseemly or improbable, improper or disgraceful conduct. Giving due respect to all because we are all created in the image of God. In other words, we belong to God, not to this world. Does not seek its own is the next item. That's just pure selfishness. And of course, none of us are selfish uh, except all of us. <laughs> we all want something that somebody else has or something better than what we have. What do you have that God didn't give you in the first place? I'd like to know what it is because I don't have anything that God didn't give me is not provoked. This is, refers back to self-control and long-suffering. If you're easily provoked, it, it, it's time to check and see if the Holy Spirit is really there. Does not take into account a wrong suffered. Sounds like gentleness, meekness, and humility to me. So these two just keep crossing back and forth between the two of them. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. What is righteousness? Anybody give me a definition for that one? Righteousness to me is walking in God's way. And a, a phrase used by the reformers was quorum deo, walking before the face of God or walking always in the presence of God. In other words, God is always watching, watching you and are you walking to please him? Righteousness is walking to please him. Rejoices in truth is the next item. What is truth? What is truth in today's society? Anybody know what truth is in today's society? I don't. Everybody says it's relative. We get situational ethics. Things like that. Pilate, standing in front of Christ, said, what is truth? And he was looking at truth in the face, and he turned around and walked away. And that's the way the world is most of the time. We look truth right in the face and just plain ignore it. In John 17, Christ says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. So what is truth to us? If you're a Christian and you have the Holy Spirit, Christ is truth, and the word of God is truth. If the Word of God isn't truth, I'm wasting my time up here. And you're wasting your time sitting there. The next one really appears very naive to me. Bears, believes, hopes, endures all things. Boy, you must, that, that looks like somebody that you would like to meet and you could uh, cheat them out of all of their money. But if you look at it from a Christian standpoint, Paul bears and believes and hopes and endure all things because his focus is Christ. Look at Paul's life in 2 Corinthians 11 and following. He talks about all the wonderful things he got to have while he was teaching and preaching. He got a night and a day in the ocean, a couple shipwrecks, beaten by 39 stripes several times during his life, and he endured all of that for Christ. Look at the martyrs as we went through history burned at the stake, beaten, stretched out on racks, you name it. So to me, bears, believes, and hopes, and endures, part of that is suffering. If you're going to be a Christian, you're going to suffer because the world isn't going to like you. They didn't like Christ 
and they certainly aren't going to like you. Jonathan Edwards, they get about halfway through that writing, and when he says in the seventh verse, in the context that charity believeth all things, hopeth all things, he probably refers to the great virtues of believing and hoping in the truth and grace of God, to which he compares charity in other parts of the chapter, and in particularly in the last verse of faith, hope, and charity. In other words, if your focus is on Christ and God and the Holy Spirit abides in you, you can bear all things. It doesn't mean you believe everything that you hear. You're supposed to have discernment and certainly uh, trust only in Christ and uh, don't trust everything you hear. But you believe it, and yes, I hear it, but I, I know you're lying to me. The next item is love never fails. That's the last item on that list. Why does Allah, he say, love never fails? God is, love. God is love, and God can't fail. That's exactly right. Without, without God, there isn't, first of all, there is no agape, because agape is a, is a type of love that is, can be with your feelings, or it might be totally against your feelings. If you're going, uh, in other words, you're told to love your enemies. Now, your feelings are going to be against that. But God says, do it anyway. So it's an act of the will, and hopefully your feelings go along with it. Yeah. Bobby, um, this takes me back to righteousness, or unrighteousness. Yeah. Uh, righteousness only comes to us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is the justification. That is our, yeah. Through that, we are made righteous in the eyes of God. We are justified, yes. We are righteous in the eyes of God. And regardless of all that we have done and will be doing. That's right. The, and, and that only comes to us through faith in the Holy Spirit. The, the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit comes to us the, makes us right. Yeah. Understanding Jesus, which then makes us righteous. So yeah. it's the Holy Spirit... Uh, that we're told that the unforgivable sin is rejecting the Holy work of the Holy Spirit until death. So we've turned away from righteousness as we reject His Holy Spirit. Yeah. The Holy Spirit puts faith in you, and you are saved through faith. And it is not your faith. It is the faith that comes from God. He continues on in chapter 13 there, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away with. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away with. Gifts were given to the church initially to build up the body of Christ in Ephesians 4.11. In other words, we wanted to build up, he wanted to build up the body of Christ. Gifts were given in the Old Testament to verify the authenticity of the person carrying them. In other words, Jesus had all the gifts and they were countered. Nicodemus, when he went to him, he said, you can't do these things unless you're from God. Elijah had all these gifts in the Old Testament. Elisha and Moses, to prove they were messengers from God. Those, those are the kinds of gifts we talk about. But uh, they are done away with unless God has a distinct purpose for their use. He gave gifts to the people to build the temple and the tabernacle, and they were given to him specifically for that purpose. He gave gifts to Balaam, and he talked to his ass, and, uh, you know, but that didn't save Balaam. The Balaam was still killed. He gave gifts to Judas. Judas, I'm sure, when he went out with the other disciples, was healing people and things like that. But the, the gifts don't save you. It is only love and the Holy Spirit that saves you. So God gives gifts for specific purposes. He doesn't just give them out, and he doesn't give them out very often. For we know in part and prophesy in part, and when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. To me, that refers to when I cross over, and I will know much more. I will not know completely, because the infinite, I mean the finite, can never understand the infinite. And God is infinite, and no matter what happens, I am still finite. I am still a creature created by God. So 
there's no way I could contain the knowledge of God. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. But what he's saying is, you start out as a child in Christ, but you're supposed to grow. You're not supposed to stay as a child. And Paul uh, criticizes, and I think it's the Corinthians, he says, I am still giving you pablum, and you're supposed to be out as teachers. What's the matter with you? For we see in a mirror dimly, but then we'll see in face to face. For now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. God knows you fully. Don't think, he, don't think you do, can go anywhere or do anything without God knowing it. And by the way, he's got it on a recording device, and it's going to be played back. <laughs> so if you think you got away with it, you didn't. But now, faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. Faith is, of course, the gift that we get through the Holy Spirit, and then faith and belief. Faith has three items to me. First of all, you have to have some knowledge about what you have faith in. The second is, you have to believe that that knowledge is true, so it includes belief. But the third item is what changes us from being like a demon. The demon knows a lot, about, a lot more than I do about God. The demon knows that everything he knows about God is true. But the third item is trust, and I trust in God. That makes me different from the demon. If I don't trust, trust means I step out. It doesn't just mean I sit here and, oh, I'm trusting God. It's like that chair over there. If I say, I trust that chair, it'll hold me up, but I'm not about to go sit in it because I think it might collapse. That's not trust at all. Trust is when you step over there and sit in that chair. When you walk across that bridge, you trust the bridge to hold you up. When you trust God, it means you walk in God's grace. There is a, a write-up on the thing here from C.S. Lewis, and it talks about Christian charity and how our, our uh, well, Christian charity sounds a very cold thing to people. In other words, it can or cannot be with emotion. And cold thing to people whose heads are full of sen sentimentality. And though it is quite distinct from affection, yet it can lead to affection. The difference between a Christian and a worldly man is not that the worldly man has only affections or, and the Christian has only charity. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on including people he would not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. In other words, if you treat people kindly, pretty soon you might find you like them. If you treat people nasty, you'll find out you don't like them. And that's the second part of that. This was written shortly, well, probably during World War II. The other item on here on your chart is Colossians, and I threw that in there, like I said, to make the thing square, but it also had one other item that this one doesn't, and that's called forgiveness. Without forgiveness, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And it says over and over in Scripture, if you don't forgive them, how, are, how do you expect God to forgive you? And he even tells the parable of the man who owed 10,000 talents and the man that owned 300 talents or 300 uh, denarii. And the, the master forgave the one with 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents, but a talent was a year's wage. So he owed 10,000 years of wages. He couldn't possibly pay it back. The master forgives him, and then he goes out and finds somebody that owes him a couple of denarii and throws that person in jail rather than forgive him. Denarii, by the way, was a day's wage. And he throws that person in jail, and the master comes and collects that guy back again and said, because you didn't forgive that person, I can no longer forgive you, and throws him in jail. 
In other words, if you don't forgive, how do you expect God to forgive you? Now, that doesn't mean you're reconciled to the person. It means you don't hold uh, hate in your heart against that person. And we ended up with Galatians, if we, are led, if we live by the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit living in you, walk as if you had the Holy Spirit living in you. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another or envying one another. In Corinthians and in Galatians, the attributes of love are given as a challenge to see if the members are really converted. In other words, were they real Christians in Galatia and Corinth? It is also a test for us to see how we stack up. Rather than a comforting list of attributes like we started out with, it shows our shortcomings and our sanctification. And we come back to where we started with Jonathan Edwards. The Spirit of God is the Spirit of love. Sanctification is God and you working together. Justification is God by himself declaring you just. Any questions? Other? I've run out of pages. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Well, I have a, I have a question. Um, earlier in the, in the talk, you mentioned uh, the verse of uh, Jesus speaking that we would know uh, whether someone's a Christian by their fruits. So are those, like, what defines those fruits? Are those acts of kindness, love? Are yeah. Those, okay. In other words, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It is kindness, gentleness, patience. You know, listen, if, if you're out there throwing a temper tantrum all the time, or if you're kicking the dog and biting the mailman on the leg or whatever it happens to be, they're going to look at you and say, I don't really think that's a Christian. Well, I, I... In other words, we are a walking testimony to Christianity. Right, and in some discussions that I have, uh, people, some people come back to me and say, well, I mean, only God knows what's in a man's heart to see whether they're truly convicted and, and could be a Christian. So how can you judge someone else of their, their Christianness, quote unquote, just no. by the outside? So am, uh, I, am, I, am I getting mixed up somewhere? Yeah, we don't judge them. We know them by their fruits. We don't judge them. We are not judges. You know, we recognize, now, it doesn't mean people without the Holy Spirit can't do something good. I don't mean that at all. But it doesn't count in God's book unless it's done from the root of love. And love is the Holy Spirit. And so you're talking about judgment as in like a condemnation sense. But I guess whenever I was using... Yeah, I, mean, I, I understand. I, it's semantics, but I, I'm, I try to be reasonably careful with my words. <laughs> yeah. Partly to answer that, having come to, to understand and accept Jesus Christ later, later in my life, uh, I actually had a Holy Spirit transition over time to, in my life, I could actually sense the, the fruits of the Spirit taking over and offsetting the opposite. So that in, in a period, am I perfect in that? No. <laughs> but, but in that period, uh, or in that regard, the fruits, you know, we, are, we are recognized as Christians by our love and by our fruits. But our fruits, everyone's fruits uh, are recognized for what they are. So, you, you know, someone is vile and, and contemptuous, et cetera. Those are fruits also, unfortunately, and we recognize their, their character in that regard as well. So, but are we, are we to be judgmental? No. I, I can't hear you. I said, he said, most of it, uh, the, the, uh, the question he had, uh, which you answered, is that uh, when you look at yourself as a Christian, to believe the word. And uh, Jesus Christ gave an example of uh, 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 
priest who goes to uh, God for forgiveness and says, I, 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 I pray so many times, I do this so many times. You know, and then this other guy comes in there and he can even lift his head up and he prays, forgive me for my sins. He says, who left me to forgive you know, and, uh, It's the same thing with us today. We look at what we're doing and we think, man, I, I'm, a, I'm a child of God. Look at that person doing this and that. We're judging from the cover. But God looks at the heart and he's the judge. The scripture says, who are you to judge somebody else's sin? So as at the end of the day, judgment does not help us in any way. And uh, uh, when uh, you look at yourself as, as a Christian, then, uh, God is love, and we are children of God. Every tree will bear the, the, the seed of itself that is of itself. If you take, if you take a, 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 a couple seed, you, you plant it, produce a couple tree. And if the, the people of the Old Testament understood the Jewish person, you were the son of God, said you compared yourself to God. Because if you're, you're the seed of God, you can be God. So Jesus Christ says he has made us children of God, meaning we are loved. We're supposed to have love for everybody. God loves everybody. God loves the guy that was killing people yesterday. He loves them just as same as he loves them. He has uh, his sins purified by Jesus Christ's uh, death on the cross in the same way. So, it, it's a truth, but at the same time, you, you don't look at the, the outside of anybody and say, ah, he, he looks like he's smoking, he's drinking, he's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not something that look at the The Holy Spirit dwells in the heart, and that's where God, God doesn't have to look there, God is there. But, and part of your question, uh, when God, when the Holy Spirit takes over, he starts to change the things you want to do. He doesn't make you, he doesn't drag you screaming and crying into Christianity. He changes what you want. And so you change from hating Christianity to loving Christianity. But it takes a time. It doesn't happen instantaneously. Oh, unless you're like Paul and you get this thing uh, hitting you on the road to Damascus, then it happens all at once. But uh, most of us, it takes a long time. Well, it's time to quit, so I'm going to say a short prayer, and we will depart. So, Father, thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit to quicken us and to adopt us into your family. Help us to work with the Holy Spirit to grow in your love and bring glory to you. And Lord, please take care of the families and the health care providers and the first responders in Dayton, Ohio, and in El Paso, Texas. Help us as we go through this coming week and bring us back here next week that we may glorify your name again. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Messiah's Upper Room Podcast. If you want to join the discussion, please send us an email with your question or comment to Messiah Lutheran Podcast at gmail.com and we'll be happy to read it during an upcoming class. You can also go to our website at www.messiahlutheranpodcast.com where you can find links to all the previous episodes and copies of our class notes in case you want to follow along with each episode. You can also find out where to subscribe to the podcast at messiahlutheranpodcast.com slash subscribe for links on how you can find us on iTunes, Pocket Casts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast catcher of your choice. If you feel like we have given you any value during this podcast, please consider going to our podcast page in iTunes and leaving a rating or a review. Not only will that provide us with valuable feedback that we can use to improve the podcast for you, but it will help this podcast to climb the iTunes rankings and help us spread God's message to anyone willing to listen. Once again, thank you so much for listening to this episode. And until next time, may God bless you throughout your week. Bye.